0: Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly podcast. I'm uh, your host, Hans from Key Aero. Also got James Peen, assistant editor of Fly with us. Hi, James. Hi, Hans. And today guest is Dave Brocklehurst, uh, chairman of the Kent Battle of Britain Museum Trust. Hi Dave. Good morning everybody. Nice to have you on. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. And also I should have said uh, Dave Brocklehurst MBE. Yeah, of
1: course.
0: <laughs> Apologies for that. So um that's all right. <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining us today. So I just want to fill people in on what's going on here. So um, it's just gone nine in the morning um, and the uh, museum opens at 10. So we're sneaking in a little, uh, a little window before the crowds descend. It sort of it feels like some sort of live broadcast on BBC News or something like that. So we'll just, uh, we won't take up uh, too much of your time. But um, it's um, very exciting to um, have museums open again. How, how, how does it
1: feel for, for you guys on the other side of the um, It's a little surreal because we've had, sort of, we were only open four months last year but we were open through the critical 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain, but we've been closed for seven months, so it's a bit surreal. It's also surreal because the museum is actually my home and my garden, so it's welcoming people back into my home environment, where I spent most of the lockdown obviously by myself. So are you the only person in, in historic aviation in the UK who, who, um, who lives on the grounds of the museum? Um quite I don't know of anybody else uh, Mike the founder was the first as far as I know when he sadly passed I'm, I moved on to site and I was sort of caring for him so I was here for a couple of years so it was an overlap but um yeah my back room is literally a hangar. so, <laughs> which, is quite, so cool. which is quite cool does that does that yeah.
0: mean that you know so you, you mentioned obviously you're, you're the chairman but because you're on site do you kind of um do you basically have to do everything like you know fix the kettle you know turn the printer yep. off and on again all that sort of stuff
1: we're volunteers, so literally, yeah, I, I clean the toilets. Um, luckily, one volunteer one day a week cleans them, but the rest of the week I clean them. It's Chairman is means nothing really. It just means that I lead from the front and I don't ask anybody to do anything I'm not prepared to do it myself, so which is a good way to run things because then you get respect from your volunteers, your, your fellow volunteers.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, just in case people don't uh, know uh, much about the history of the uh, museum, so... Home to the largest collection of Battle of Britain memorabilia uh, with artifacts from over 700 crash sites. Is that correct?
1: Yep, correct, yeah. So t- tell us a bit about the, the, the history of the museum and how it kind of came to be. The history of the museum, it started back in 1965, uh, where Mike Llewellyn, who was also an MBE, um, heard about a crashed aircraft from his father, went looking for it, um, got a couple of his mates to join, sort of thing, and it just sort of multiplied from there. So in the um, Late 60s, around the Battle of Britain film, it was a travelling exhibition. Um, the first main displays were actually in 1969 for the um, premieres of the Battle of Britain film at various cinemas around Kent. Um, we then had a premises at Langley near Maidstone in the chicken shed of a former Battle of Britain, pilot Brian uh, Hitchens. We soon outgrew that and moved to Chillum Castle. Um, by the late 70s, we'd outgrown that site um, and the option for Hawking should come up um, we started working, oh, I started volunteering here in 1979, um, and then we opened the first building here in 1982, and it's just progressed from there, really. Now the largest Battle of the Britain Museum anywhere in the world.
0: Let's just go back to that.
1: So you you, you joined in 1979. How, how old were you in 1979, if you don't mind me asking, Dave? I, I was a 10-year-old lad, um, nagging my parents to come and volunteer at the museum. They thought it was a fad that I was going through. Came along, met um, debut canan Len Green, who were the... Founders of the Hawking site uh, before the Kent Bathurst Museum moved on to Hawking. Um, and they said yes, So I was 10 years old when I recovered my first aircraft. I was 14 when I went out on a push bike, found and recovered my first aircraft by myself. Um, I was 17 when I became a trustee, 21 became, when I became chairman, and that's 31 years ago now. So that is that is incredible, isn't it? I mean, I know the seventies was a different
0: era, but you know, like, um, it's it's amazing, isn't it, being a volunteer from the age of ten? I mean, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the seventies is the uh, is where the sort of phrase "the dog ate my homework" uh, originated. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you ever kind of, um, did you ever have to tell a teacher, sorry, uh, sorry, miss, I couldn't hand my uh, my maths in because I was uh, recovering um, some battle of Britain artifacts from the beach.
1: (laughs) I didn't have that. The problem was that I had history teachers who started teaching the Second World War and were making mistakes. And naively at that age, I corrected them, which wasn't a good idea.
0: (laughs) That is that that is that is incredible. Tell us about the um, the the first um, you know your first sort of aircraft recovery that you just mentioned, and you know and about that.
1: Yeah, I was a ten year old lad, sort of invited on a recovery. I don't think my parents realised what I was up to, but also being one of the small, well, being the smallest person, um, when it was um sort of a small excavation, quite often they let me go down the hole to do some of the work because I was just, I was smallest and could get to places others couldn't. But um it was a spitfire that we dug um near Smeath. Um yeah, and loved it. It was, you know, real archaeology, you're digging up something that's a, a minute of an hour of a day. Uh, the pilot had been sadly killed, but I later met his family. Um, so yeah it's, a, it's an amazing experience
0: like a child Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones existed <laughs> uh, yes of sorts yes, yes. That's, that's, that's incredible James can you imagine them uh, like doing you know doing that now For like you know I'm just wondering if one of my kids came back and said I'm, uh, I'm, I've, I've been recruited to be uh, to be a, a volunteer at a museum I'll see you later <laughs> I mean, you're to send a 10 year old down to a wreck of an aircraft now you just wouldn't be allowed would it
1: no we, we can't have under 18 year olds volunteer in the museum because then you have to have the DBA assessments and all this protection in sort of thing. It's, it's sad because a, a 10 year old, um, you sort of, um, you absorb all the information you learn. So it's a great time to learn the history. And of course, in the, in the late seventies and eighties, a lot of Battle Britain pilots were around. I've, I've known over a thousand battle of Britain pilots and we're down to one now. So I was incredibly lucky, but incredibly lucky that, uh, several, Um, individuals gave me the opportunity to join and sort of nurtured me from there, really. That's a really interesting point, actually, because uh, my eldest son is
0: 12 and um, spends a lot of time watching, you know, World War II, Battle of Britain documentaries, really interested in all the kind of the detail. And I think that kind of age, you know, 10 onwards, you know, the the mind is sophisticated enough, isn't it, to start being really interested in some of this. And I think it's quite fascinating um, and reassuring that you know, children of the modern age who live on TikTok, yeah. et cetera, are still interested and still have a massive respect for what those
1: people did for us. Absolutely. And the other thing that we, we do at the museum is that we, aren't, we don't class ourselves as an aircraft museum. We're a museum of the men of the Battle of Britain. So the recovery of a crashed aircraft is the means to tell the story of the pilot, the aircrew who shot them down. So it is something that appeals to people of all ages, It appeals to ladies where they come in and they're sort of a bit apprehensive because it's another aircraft museum. But when they actually come in and see it's about the human side of it, it it draws them in. Um, It's the sort of inquisitive nature. When we get schools come in, if I know they're pre-booked and I know where they come from, I can actually mark out whose aircraft crashed in that area, who's buried in that area, and sometimes who actually even went to that school. So it just actually, they may be... 81 years ago now, but there's a connection that they feel connected to the story and draws them into the subject.
0: I I suppose one of the things about um, your museum is obviously where it's situated. That was a very kind of, um, you know, a a very active and lively part of, uh, you know, Britain, wasn't it? Just because of its proximity um, to France.
1: 26 fighter squadrons flew out of Hawkins during the Battle of Britain. So you know, there's only 71 squadrons participating in the Battle of Britain. Um, it was the closest airfield to occupied France. Um, airfields had two minutes from orders to scramble to be airborne, except Hawking, which was one minute 30 seconds, because it was so close to the French coast. Um, squadrons with experience took off and flew inland to come back on themselves to have the height. Um, if they took off from Hawking and climbed to the enemy, they were in trouble straight away, and quite a few squadrons were wiped out doing that from this airfield. So how,
0: how long would it have taken um, for an aircraft to get from Hawking to the French coast?
1: Um, well, we, we, we do it the other way. Um, a, a, bomber, a German bomber coming to hit Hawking is about six minutes. Um, and we do that as a bomber because obviously a lot of the fighters will be escorting the bombers. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a fighter would probably about four minutes, four and a half minutes. A cross town shell that was landing on Hawking would be about 60 seconds. That's how close we are to the French coast. Before they built the houses from formerly Mike's flat and my flat, you could see across and you could, on clear days, you could see car lights in the evening, you could see house lights on the French coast. That's how close we are to, to France.
0: That is pretty pretty mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned you've, you've met over a thousand Battle of Britain pilots, I mean, oh, sorry, from, from obviously when you were...
1: Yeah. No, I've, uh, I've met I've met around about four hundred, but I've been in contact with around about thousand Battle of Britain pilots.
0: What, 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 I mean, obviously, all incredible people. What are some of the, some of, the, some of those kind of, um, you know, meetings and connections that stand out?
1: Um, for you? The, the the biggest one, uh, and people who know me know that um, I had a very, very close friendship with Bill Green, um, who's quite often been quoted as the most inexperienced Battle of Britain pilot, and he was the first Hurricane I went out and found and recovered by myself. I wrote to him as a a 14, 15 year old child, and he wrote back and said, Sorry, I'm only interested in the day. I'm not interested in the past, which was devastating at that age. But in 1990, I was in the shop, and this old couple came in, um, came to the counter, said, Can I have two seniors? I said, You don't pay to come in here. You're Bill Green. And I, I recognized him. I don't know how, but from that moment to the day he died, he was my closest friend. That evening, I took him back to his crash site. Um, I took him back numerous times. We um, filmed quite a few documentaries, the Dave Jason documentary that I was a historian on. We covered bill 's story and we took him back to the, the crash site. We took him back to the family that um, took him in when he was shot down and shot in the knee, um, bailed out twenty thousand feet. His parachute opens 100, 150 feet from the ground, saving his life and we re- re- recounted that story in the documentary um, so much so that uh, when he sadly passed that um, I helped organize the the funeral with his family. Um I was one of three people that gave his eulogy at his funeral, um, which is an amazing privilege, but it's it's not nice when you your heroes become friends and you have to see them pass. That's the downside of it. But each Battle of Britain Pilot has passed, it's it feels like a more weight is on our shoulder to make sure their history, their stories have been carried forward for future generations. Um but so we've just had the privilege to Hear these stories firsthand, so yeah, incredibly privileged. But the downside is seeing your heroes grow old and die around you. Did,
0: did he? Did he remember uh, writing that response to your original uh, uh, letter? No, he didn't. He I, didn't. It's, I suppose it's. it's, it's we, we can't really comprehend, can we? What you know, what it was like for like for those you know for those people. Yeah. We want them to retell their stories, and quite often, you know, I suppose you have to re- respect that they might not want to relive that. But like you said, as a 14-year-old, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's tricky. So what was, what was Bill like?
1: Um, absolutely outstanding individual. Um, just the epitome of a Battle of Britain pilot, caring, loving. If you had a bad day, I used to speak to him on the phone two or three times a week. Um, used to go down and visit and stay with him, or he'd put me up locally. Um, but just everything you wanted in a hero, really um in later life he became a born again christian um i don't have any faith as such the religion for me is the battle of britain um but he was he didn't preach to you um but he was a devout christian and just the loveliest man that you could you could meet and have as a hero really just somebody you could admire respect um and you just had to pinch yourself that you know that he was on speed dial and you know he would ring me as often as i rang him it's just an incredible honour and i was lucky enough to have many Battle of Britain pilots like that. Um, In my late teens, early 20s, quite often at Christmas, I'd have 30 or 40 Christmas cards from Battle of Britain pilots. And it's very difficult to sort of explain that to younger generations because it's like having probably the whole Olympic team that have won gold medals send a Christmas card to you. Uh, But my heroes were always heroes. They died as heroes. They haven't been destroyed like footballers by sex, drugs and rock and roll. (laughs) They were exactly what they said on the can. They were heroes. Uh, Absolutely. And... You know, one, 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 one
0: thing that has always stayed with me um, since I've been doing this job. Speaking to um, Charlie Brown and Anthony Parkinson, yeah. these uh, um, yeah. two, you know, obviously very yeah. experienced. I know, I know them both. Yeah, you, you know, you, you obviously know them both, and they. I, I met them last summer, and I think Charlie Brown had just recorded fifteen hundred hours in a spitfire. So I don't think there's anyone that has probably
1: blown more hours in it, or maybe. maybe Dom's just retired, and he had two thousand hours. But okay. um,
0: yeah. and they were talking about the, you know of our world, you know a, a great airplane is to fly even now, and and then I think it was Anthony that sort of turned around and said, you know, it's great flying it here and now because you know it's it's easy and we're just you know doing what we want. Now imagine doing that five times a day in the dark, freezing cold, and getting shot at.
1: Well, sadly, absolutely, and not knowing. Well, sometimes I think a Battle of Britain pilot had a good way of living because today we worrying about our pension, our mortgage, our long-term health. All a Battle of Britain pilot had to do was think about surviving that day, um, which is horrendous, but they didn't pile the pressure on that we do. They saw their friends die around them. I had Keith Aldridge was a very dear friend of mine. And because he lost a couple of friends, he didn't have, he didn't have any close associates for the rest of his life because it was a way of protecting himself. But, you know, if, if you live for the day and don't worry about tomorrow, it's a good way of living. But of course, these days, you know, we've got, you know, we, we hope we're going to live into our 80s and 90s. We've got a plan for financially for that. We put so much pressure on ourselves and these guys, all they had to do was really sort of go, um, survive the day, go and get drunk, um, get a good gulp of oxygen in the morning and go and fight again and just, you know, hope their number wasn't up. So it's,
0: it's incredible. actually. We were talking about, um, that pub, the Eagle in Cambridge where they, um, they, uh, when they were re- renovate, re- renovating it, they, they discovered that ceiling, you know, that where they, um, all the was um, in that era and the, the, the pilots used candles to sort of burn the ne- their no, names and the yeah. names of the squadrons into the ceiling. And that really is a very vivid uh, depiction of what you're talking about there, that living for the moment. You could just, you can almost yeah. kind of smell the cigarette smoke and, you know, just Absolutely. sort of smell the kind of like the booze living for the moment you've got through another day.
1: And also, so someone like Hawkins was evacuated during the Battle of Britain. It was too dangerous to be here 24 7. So, it'd evacuate inland. But before and after that time, a pilot, um, especially with the aura that went around them, sort of thing, from here they would go into folks and they'd go into the local town, sort of thing. But of course, they had wings, they had fuel, free fuel, quite often when they stole it from the airfield, and they had cars. So, they actually were having quite a good life outside of it because um, pilot wings was attracting young ladies they had quite a good time. It was the Irks and the Airmen that went to the local pubs um, and could only afford to buy sort of beer and the local pubs, there wasn't really any um, young ladies for them. So it's, um, yeah, there's some amazing stories. Paddy Barthrop was one of the classic ones, you know, coming back drunk, driving his Lagonda straight into the front of a shoe shop in Hawkins because he was drunk and, yeah, just having, well, enjoying it. But, you know, that's, I'm sure it's rose-tinted glasses looking back. They were terrified at the time, but... They always, you know, thought it was going to happen to somebody else. It wasn't going to be them. So that's how they managed to get through most of the time.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, going back, going back to the museum. I mean, obviously, you know, seven
1: hundred odd artifacts. Is there one? Well, it's the seven hundred aircraft. It's sorry, probably a hundred thousand exhibits, but it's seven hundred yeah. aircraft that we've excavated from the Battle of Britain or Battle of an aircraft that each one tells the story of the pilot, the air crew, um, who shot them down. But it's everything 1940, so obviously we've got a lot of aircraft. Um, In the last five years, we've added a Bolton-Paul Defiant, beautiful, really, you've got to call it a a modern-built Defiant because it was built on the Bolton-Paul production line by former employees. Um, A lot of the metal was left over at the Bolton-Paul factory from the Defiant and Baleo production. That's a stunning aircraft, we acquired that in 2015 from the Bolton-Paul Association. 2017, customer 2018, we bought the remains of the Blenheims that John Romain had to build a Blenheim, which is an ongoing project. We've just added the cockpit too. And then last year, six days before the lockdown, we acquired the um, what turned out to be a Heinkel, not a CASA, a German-built Heinkel, and that arrived on the 15th of March. Six days later, we went down on lockdown. But during the lockdown, myself and then a few others, we managed to rebuild it and have that um, painted, well, it was a year ago this Sunday that we finished painting it. Tell us a bit more about that project then. Um, well, it's one of those things. Um, as a child, I've dreamt of all these aircraft. We've, we've had Hurricane and Spitfire and Meshnik replicas from the Battle of Britain film, a lot of them being rebuilt with original parts. But obviously, we've got a long list of aircraft that we wanted. And being up at, um, Duxford many times, seeing the, what we thought was a CASA sort of in the back of the hangar. Um, I always had ambitions to try and acquire that. And we also had ambitions with two CASAs in America. Uh, when I was, um, Sorting out the deal and buying the Blennin project, I mentioned to quite a few people at Duxford that we were keen to get the CASA as we thought. And then we got a phone call from Gary Brown, luckily, and said, you know, they're thinking about disposing of the CASA. We went up there, found out it was a Heinkel, call, negotiated, and in September 2019, we acquired the aircraft. But it took eight months of myself and Welch's Transport organising to bring it down because it's 23 and a half foot wide. so. We had to organise um, the M11, M25, Dartford Crossing, M20 to be closed on a rolling road closure. Um, we had three police forces involved, but in the end we actually employed Essex Police to manage the, the, the road closure. And literally we were down to the wire. Um, COVID was clamping down around us. But we managed to get it out on the 15th of September and of course 21st of March, sorry, 15th of March, Saturday, and 21st of March, COVID locked everything down. So we just acquired it in time. Um, myself, doing um, quite a few of the lads, we've been up for pretty two days. We've managed to get the fuselage into position. Um, we both said to it, have we got time to get the wings on? And we've been told it was beyond economical repair. And we thought it was late afternoon. We looked at our watches, it was about 20 past 10 in the morning. So we had um, um, Darren Scott with a high lorry. I had the wings ready just in case we had time, so we wheeled those in. We bolted those on and they went on perfectly and very simply. Um so we achieved what we were told would be impossible because the condition of the aircraft we'd prepared the wings prior to the fuselage arriving um, but it just came together with um, a lot of dreams, a lot of um heartache and um but yeah with a terrific bunch of volunteers that i' I'm proudly lead sort of thing we achieved the impossible and we've got Heinkel currently sitting outside, but our ambition is to try and get that undercover with the Blenheim and several other aircraft we're trying to acquire as soon as possible um yeah, so it's just one of those dreams that's come come true. And every morning I look out the window from a flat. I've got a, a high hind core blending with three hurricanes in the garden. So it's <laughs> that's, that's so, a pretty cool garden. How do you even go about,
0: um, you know, uh, getting the Dartford crossing closed for you? That's an interesting. Um,
1: you, you employ people that have that skills and that knowledge. <laughs> but um, I've I've had to close the M fifty four, M four, M twenty five, and M twenty in the past because the uh, bringing down the define that was, that was 18 and a half feet. So it was sort of a dry run for bringing something a bit larger down. But uh, Welch's Transport were fantastic. They they led on a lot of the the problems we had because the highways agency told us that we had to cut the Heinkel up in small bits to bring it down. Um, we were told that we had to ship it uh, down by barge from Felixstowe to Tilbury and bring it down there. And I pointed out it was longer on the road than if we just brought it straight down. So it was a lot of going backwards and forwards between authorities and just just going with the heart sort of thing really and pleasing our case and we got there in the end really and very lucky that the imperial war museum donated the aircraft and donated the transport cost to bring it down so that made it more achievable for us um, and will allow us to to acquire our next project sooner than we thought so of of, of all the thousands and thousands of artifacts
0: um in the museum is there is there any that spring to mind that really still kind of you, you find mind blowing?
1: Um, they all do because they just tell a story of a brave young man. But we've got things like Lord Dowding's uniform that he wore in the Battle of Britain. It's dated nineteen thirty nine in the collar. That's you know that is completely utterly unique. And um, we've got Keith Park's memorabilia. Last year I rebuilt that area, and I've got Keith Park's memorabilia on his right hand side of Dowding's uniform because he was his right hand man. It's just everything is just oozes history, and it's it's not just about mechanics. It's about men here. So. Every single fragment's got a story that we tell on the display, but a lot of them have got stories behind the, the finding the aircraft, the recovery of the aircraft, the finding the pilot if he was alive, finding the family if he wasn't, um, bringing families down to see that, that he's has been remembered. It's just, yeah, it's just it's 81-year-old it's 80, history, but it's living because it's still here telling stories. Um, families are still alive. We've still got Paddy Hemingway alive, the sole surviving Battle of Britain pilot, it's at a 2,938. Pilots and aircrew. We've got one left, so you know he's the last of the few. But when he when he sadly passes, his story is, is being told here with everybody else. So we hope that in a thousand years' time, that if you come to Hawkins to the Battle of Britain Museum, you will see these stories. And it's the same as going to the battlefield of Hastings and seeing Sergeant Smith with a uh, an arrow and a bit of chainmail, we hope that what we're setting in foundations when we're long forgotten about, um, our heroes won't be. I mean,
0: it's quite. I think it's sort of quite an emotional experience, isn't it, your museum, uh, more so than you know, uh, simply a museum that
1: is just yeah. dedicated to airframes. It's, it's fantastic. Going to the National Collections, it's lovely to see all these airframes, but it's like a car showroom. It's quite cold. It's quite clinical. It's, it's a Spitfire, a Hurricane, a Lancaster. Here, it's Leslie Pitt killed on the 15th of September. It, it's, it's just a different level, really, sort of thing. They serve their purpose, But of course, a lot of the national museums now have been turned into kids' play areas sort of thing. We we keep to our principles, we're a museum of artefacts of stories. We probably will have some sort of interactive displays in a few years, but we're an old fashioned museum and it's it's artefacts that lead, it's the stories. Without the stories, you don't have a museum. So that is the critical importance. And that's what the museum is all about. It's the same uh, ethics and morals of 1940.
0: You have uh, visitors from all over the world, obviously, because you're such a unique, unique place. So where, is the, um, where is the most random and far-flung place you've um, you, you found out that
1: someone has made the, uh, made the trip from? <laughs> Literally everywhere. Uh, we get regulars that come in from Brazil and Argentina every year. Um, obviously, you know, the, the normals are so Australia and New Zealand, things like that. But um, in, well, for example, in 1990, I ran a campaign to save the airfield from being built on. And we had 100,000 people in, in six weeks said, don't build on it, from 96 countries around the world, but include Afghanistan and Iraq, um, Russia, when it's behind the Iron Curtain. That's the importance of the Battle of Britain and the history, is that it wasn't just saving Britain, it was saving the, the world. If we'd lost the Battle of Britain, we wouldn't know anything about the concentration camps, um, dam busters, um, D-Day, any of this sort of thing, Battle of Britain had to be fought on one to allow everything else to happen. So every day we go about our everyday lives, that's because of the Battle of Britain was fought on one.
0: So let's just, uh, I'll just go over a couple of uh, logistical uh, points for people listening. So um, admission prices, so is it like £10 for adults, £9 senior citizens, £4 for kids?
1: That's right. And we take cards or cash, yep.
0: So that's quite a bargain day out. I mean, you know, obviously with two children, myself, James, you'll be in the same sort of like boat, you know, when some, someone says, let's have a family day out, or should we go to um, Legoland or the Snowdome and you go online and you think it's going to be 250 quid? I'm you know, oh, not doing it. that for like 45 minutes. Whereas, yeah. you know, I think this is, you know, um, this is an absolute bargain for uh, like a, a brilliant day, you know, that will be, you know, obviously sort of, you, you're going to get a lot from, from this on all sorts of levels, aren't you?
1: Well, we Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are a pure charity. Up until COVID, we'd had a hundred pounds from par- one parish council. All the money was funded by Michael went out of his own pocket, to a certain degree out of my own pocket, but everything is funded by entrance fees and donations. We're all volunteers. We try and keep the price low to attract visitors, but we're not here to make money. We're here to tell the story of the Battle of Britain. We're a three acre site in seven buildings. There's a shop, a very nice tea bar on site. There's five display buildings. It's a one-way system. It's very airy, lots of space for people. So it's COVID safe, it's COVID friendly. So hopefully people will see this, will come along and visit um, and have a good day out. And more importantly, just learn something about why they're leading their everyday life today. Perhaps, absolutely.
0: You know, look, thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, I, I can imagine that if you peer out the window, you might see some sort of queues forming. We love queuing and you know, we've missed queuing, haven't we, in COVID, I think, you know.
1: The other thing we don't do, we don't do pre-booking. So a lot of museums do pre-booking, which means that people turn up early and queue. What we try and do is keep it free-flowing so you don't have to queue up to get in. Arrive when you want. You get up in the morning, it's sunny, you may want to go to the beach and not where you pre-booked. So just turn up when you want here and we're pleased to see you and you'll have a lovely day out. So That's that's brilliant.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, Dave. We better let you, um, you know, because obviously as chairman, you'll, you'll still have to go and open the doors and stuff, won't you? You know, You'll have to, you
1: know, I was in the building at half ticks this morning sweeping and polishing, getting everything ready for the day. So it's it's ready for them, luckily. So that's that's leading from the front. Well look, you know,
0: thank you very much. And um look, get down to uh, get down to the Battle of Britain Museum in Kent, everyone. It's a great day out. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Um, My pleasure. James. Pleasure to see you every soon. Cool. And uh thank you for uh thank you for listening. See you same time uh, next week.
1: This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.